Hey, Real Talk podcast listeners, if you're looking for real coverage, like everyday person, help me understand this coverage of the Alberta budget, you've come to the right place. I loved the comment left by one of you in our live chat during this Real Talk roundtable. You said, I'm confused. Is Alberta rich or poor? I guess it depends on who you talk to and what the context is of their perspective. You know, with every budget, there's going to be winners and losers. But what does this budget mean for you? your family, your business, your community, your home province, if you call Alberta home. We're going to talk to Alberta's finance minister, the Honorable Nate Horner, plus a former cabinet minister, now the CEO of the Edmonton Chamber of Commerce, Doug Griffiths, and the CEO of the Edmonton Downtown Business Association, Punita McBrien, in a special post-budget episode of the Real Talk Roundtable. Stick around for the flamethrower presented by our friends of the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. You'll love the one from AY, who's sick of my blind, biased support for Pierre Polyev. This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Well, just hours after the uh, Alberta budget release, we bring you this special episode of Real Talk as we dig into the details that matter most to you as citizens of our home province of Alberta. We welcome those of you joining us from outside Alberta as well. Guaranteed, you'll glean interesting insights into what's happening right now in one of Canada's most dynamic provinces. Certainly a ton of economic activity in Alberta, a lot of economic potential as well. But that's not every storyline with the budget. Keep in mind, there's a relatively new government here, in particular, a relatively new premier that got to that position by making promises on things like income tax cuts. But guess what? That's not contained in this budget. We're going to ask Alberta's finance minister why when the Honorable Nate Horner joins us about 10 minutes into this episode. And in 30 seconds from now, we're going to welcome to studio the president and CEO of the Edmonton Chamber of Commerce, former Minister of Municipal Affairs, Doug Griffiths, and the CEO of the Edmonton Downtown Business Association, Punita McBrien. This episode of Real Talk is presented by Alberta's top real estate school. That's Rello. And we're going to be talking a lot about economics, the job market. We're going to be talking a lot about personal and industry potential today. If that sort of talk floats your boat, that's your jam. And you're ready to step into a career where you're your own boss, unlimited earning potential, setting your own hours. Rello is the perfect fit for you. That's R-E-L-O. The best part about Rello is how committed they are to your success. Live instructors hosting online exam prep sessions every weekend. You know, all you got to do is pass that exam, get your real estate license, and then you are off to the races. And these experts of theirs, they'll help you long after your course is completed. They are interested. They're invested in your success. And right now, because you heard about this on Real Talk, you can knock 20% off any Rello course with the code Real Talk. That's one word, Real Talk, when you get started today at Rello.ca. Punita McBride, Doug Griffiths joining us in studio, Alberta's finance minister coming up in about 10 minutes time. A good morning to the both of you and welcome. Thanks for making time for us. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, obviously paying close attention to the budget. There'll be implications uh, for both of you as uh, corporate leaders and, and also as citizens of this province. Uh, Doug, what's one of the key storylines? Once you got all the details yesterday afternoon, you were able to sift through it. What jumped out at you? Well, I guarantee you the headlines are going to be the $200 tax on electric vehicles. Right. Like that's I, uh, It's the small things that get you every time. And that's the one that people are going to jump on and talk about how it's a it's a slight against people who own electric vehicles. OK, I want to dig into that, though, because maybe on the surface, it's great headline material. Uh, but this may have been a long time coming. I know you've got some insights that. Yeah, well, being in government before, we discussed it uh, quite a bit because we all of the revenue that comes from from the gas tax goes to um you know, pay for the roads. And so if everyone moves to electric vehicles, you lose a significant amount of revenue. So we were always calculating what would be the equivalent 
tax we'd have to generate from electric vehicles in order to cover um, what we need for the roads. And I think we had calculated around $120, $125. So it's today's dollars, it's about $200 per vehicle. Okay, but you, of, of course it's being spun, for, especially for people that don't dig into the details or know the background or history on this, it's being spun as a slight. The Alberta government, a little shot across the bow at, at the electric vehicle industry. Yeah, well, the government has sort of bred its own reputation for being opposed to electric vehicles and some of the innovative things doubling down on oil and gas. So they sort of created their own storyline that's going to get make this story get twisted. But there is some legitimacy to that. Too. Okay, I love that insight. This is just this is just an example of the insights we're going to get on today's episode. Punita, great to see you. Obviously, forefront in your mind will be what this budget means uh, for Edmonton and in particular Edmonton's downtown. What's what's one of the headlines in your mind? What jumped out at you? Yeah, for me, it's all about our cities across the province. It's not just Edmonton and Calgary, but um, what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing is that there's um, really still a serious infrastructure deficit in our cities and our downtown needs a lot of support right now. We're dealing with a lot of urban issues and uh, I think there's a lot of nervousness about how cities are gonna solve these issues if if the money's not there for them in this budget. Yeah, we saw, and, and I'll reference this when we talked to the minister, but a, a release from Alberta municipalities that pulled no punches, they're, 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 they're basically choked. They're really choked uh, at this budget. What are the implications of that? Help us understand. Yeah, it's everything from, you know, we've got sidewalks and roads that are crumbling downtown and that's a really big deal and so infrastructure usually is a partnership between orders of government and I think um, I think the city of Edmonton for sure I'm sure cities across the province were hoping for a lot more money to address these infrastructure issues you know property values are not what they once were especially downtown uh, that's a huge chunk of Edmonton's tax base and and what I'm hearing from from municipalities is that just that funding framework for cities is not working anymore and we're expecting our cities to do more and more and more you know i'm sure we're going to talk later about public safety and mental health and addictions and all these big issues that cities are trying to solve that are not supposed to be city issues to solve um so they're doing more and more and and there's not a lot of new money for them or any new money for them really in this budget yeah uh, well and, and part of it, it's kind of interesting we can plot out this conversation this episode of the show uh to a certain degree but we don't know what uh minister horner is going to tell us when we talk to him and so a lot of that'll be kind of us us digging into his answers on the questions that the three of us will be asking uh, as mentioned doug obviously a long time mla you were with progressive conservative government and, and obviously a senior cabinet minister uh, for quite some time, including navigating Alberta through that horrific southern and central Alberta flood uh, back in 2013 as Minister of Municipal Affairs. You've seen uh, budgets and the process as a cabinet minister uh, when Alberta's high on the hog. And uh, you've seen times where that's not exactly the case. And there's some questions about Alberta's economic health. So take us into the process of, of putting a budget together. And you've obviously got unique insights on it. Well, it is it is a difficult process because, I mean, we have a, a value here in Alberta generally to try and balance budgets. So you always try and work on a balanced budget. But the challenge we have with this province is that you can get 10, $15 billion swings in revenue in a matter of a few months based on oil prices, which you know signifies that the more we continue to rely on oil and gas, the, the, the more you know wicked fluctuations we're going to have and the less consistency we're going to have in our budget processes going forward, uh, which is you know one of the values of the the Heritage Savings Trust Fund, which I understand is why Minister Horner is putting more money into the Heritage Trust Fund. Um, if it built up to $100 billion, I think that would unbalance Confederation. I mean, ha imagine having neighbors looking at our bank account with $100 billion or $200 billion in it. <clears throat> that would create a lot of challenges. But but somewhere we've got to move to more consistency. But I mean, it's been 40 years and where every government has tried to do it. And it's a, it's a continuous challenge. Yeah. What do you think would be the the implications like just this is crystal ball this is speculation take it for what it's worth but but when you say it would unbalance confederation um like like what do you think actually would be the implications of that what what, what would our, uh, our our neighbors or fellow canadians in uh, nova scotia or newfoundland or or saskatchewan for that matter make of it and, and what could it mean for alberta well it would it would every single program that the federal government offered every time there was a, a a first minister's meeting where all the premiers got together or the the federal provincial territorial meetings the conversation would always go to alberta having hundreds of billions of dollars in the heritage saving trust fund and having lots of money and and it 
it would distract from any conversation, constructive conversation about how we address issues province by province and across the country. Because everyone would look at us and go, you've got all the money and yet you're making demands of the federal government or us. And I think it would actually make enemies of the other provinces because of the jealousy. Hmm. Um, I, I talked to uh, you know a few friends kind of in our nerdy circles on budget day. It's a big one and everyone's like texting back and forth and the group chats are going off. And the very first message in the very first group chat was from someone that just said, Budget's bad for Edmonton. And uh, and I know that uh, the city of Edmonton, uh, you know, when there's an, an NDP government in Alberta, which is no one's really gotten used to. There was there was one of them, um, but maybe a little more friendly for the capital city uh, based on the way it votes, uh, whether or not people like to acknowledge it. That's kind of how politics works. Um, and uh, the budget appears to be on the surface a little bit more friendly to Calgary. Is that something that, that you think Edmonton businesses, uh, Edmontonians, uh, people in, you know, you know uh, steering Edmonton nonprofits just brace for? Or do you think this was a surprise to anybody yesterday? No, I think we were all bracing for it. And and it's it's so tough. I always want to be an optimist. I always want to, you know, work with with the government, whoever they are, you know, there. And I've had great conversations with our provincial government about our economy and about um, downtown. I think I was maybe a little bit more optimistic than I should have been. Uh, I got my hopes a little too high and and it does sting like, you know, $330 million going to downtown Calgary for their new uh, rivers and event centers, basically mm. the new Calgary arena. Um, that hurts because, you know, we've got big, big needs and, and an equal need to revitalize our downtown here in Edmonton. So it's, it's hard to actually look at that in black and white, even though deep down we all kind of knew uh, that we were not going to be in for an equal deal between Edmonton and Calgary. Mm. This budget. When you talk to, to politicians, some of them uh, make the most out of like, you know, geographic or other rivalries, perceived rivalries, invented rivalries, real rivalries. Uh, and, you know, an example might be the, the the provincial government in Alberta and the feds. You can make the argument it's good for both of them to be at odds, but but also to figure out ways to work together. You know, I remember Seamus O'Regan, federal minister, talking about how he actually had a great working relationship with then energy minister Sonia Savage. And it surprised everybody. But I think it was also a bit of a relief to know that yes. some work was being done there. Yes. Yes. You know? We need more of that. And there is some of that. That's the fascinating thing is it's like when we get down to certain issues like we can collaborate between city to province to the federal government. But if you're, you know, I guess too close to an election, in this case, we're maybe too close to a municipal election. Uh, and so politics gets in the way of just like fairness and getting stuff done, which yeah. which which hurts. Uh, the, this government, I think, has has I mean, hey, hey, just use this show as an example. Uh, Premier's made herself available several times. She's been joining us uh, to sit in the chair you're sitting in on, on Wednesday, the 13th of March. People can circle their calendars there. Uh, minister Horner's going to join us in a second. The finance minister, they've they've been open with uh, granting interview requests and the like. Whether or not people like what they hear in the interviews may be a different matter, but they're talking. The Kenny government didn't talk, didn't yeah. talk to a lot of talk show hosts, <laughs> probably myself included. It's fair to say. Do you get the sense that, that that openness, for example, to some media interviews, that willingness to to meet with different people, which can be an Achilles heel situation as well, meeting with just anybody. But is that a positive sign, Doug? Do you get the sense that this government's willing to, to work with cities, work with organizations like the Edmonton Chamber? I've, I've got every indication about that. I mean, uh, Minister Horner is coming to for the chamber breakfast of uh, the post-budget speech. Um, the premier has been available whenever I've made a call to her office. Um, I, I I do believe that. I think they recognize actually that the um, the state of the current um, legislature, the unbalanced, means they need to put in a little more effort to still reach Edmontonians because frankly they're they're Alberta citizens, they're Alberta businesses, they're concerned about what happens with the province, and and I don't think um, I've seen any example yet of them ignoring us. We might not get the same funding, which I think is is a bit of a challenge, but they're listening. And so we need to keep talking and build that relationship so that eventually we can get that 330 million coming to our downtown, which is which will dramatically change uh, the way Edmonton's perceived. OK, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing which question the two of you put in front of the finance minister. That's coming up in just a, a moment here. Uh, we'll take a, a quick second to mention to those of you, maybe the younger members of our listening audience. But, but, but you know, I mean, what's young these days anyway? It, it, it's never too late to start a new career, uh, a new adventure in post-secondary learning. Uh, if, for those of you that are maybe looking at this budget going, well, what was in for universities there? What are the implications for the next generation of Alberta's skilled workforce, Alberta's innovators, Alberta's researchers? 
Athabasca University's right up your alley. You can learn more about Canada's open university with world-class accredited online degrees and courses by checking out the AU Advantage at AthabascaU.ca. Hey, it's the first of the month. If you're listening to this show on the day that we're doing it, that's March 1st. It means that groceries, every purchase over $75 are 15% off at the 16 Friesen Brothers locations across the province of Alberta. 15% off your groceries for the month. That's a big deal for families looking to stretch those dollars as far as they can. Friesen Brothers understands that wonderful things happen around the family dinner table, and that's why they do everything they can to make sure they're bringing you the freshest produce, proteins, baked goods, and otherwise as close to home as possible. Friesen Brothers is Alberta-grown, Alberta-owned. You can learn more at Friesen.com. Are you one of those that's going to be investing in their personal space this year where you're going to declutter? You've promised yourself you're going to get organized. you got to take a second to request a free consultation with California Closets online at californiaclosets.ca. We've worked with them. We've seen the finished product. Unbelievable. Masters of their craft. Their designers will give you ideas you've probably never even thought of. I mean, have you seen how they can make ironing boards disappear? Have you seen some of those walk-in closets they design? Have you ever seen them overhaul a garage it's custom closets and storage solutions for the entire home and nobody does it better than california closets and this is a shout out to the job seekers out there if you're interested in being part of canada's green energy movement want to let you know that kubi renewable energy is hiring in alberta and bc they've got an office in kamloops they've got offices in calgary edmonton they've just opened one in lethbridge and those are just the headquarters they're installing across western canada on farms on big industrial buildings on downtown office towers and of course on homes cottages and cabins homes cottages and cabins across western canada nobody's installing more solar than our friends at kubi renewable energy you can check out the careers link to learn more about what's happening at kubi and for those that are yeah we've caught your attention with the job seeker stuff but you're not necessarily involved in solar installation right now you're more looking at well you're a talented and skilled engineer guess what more good news from partners of real talk apex automation is looking for engineers png and even those that are just graduating right now to work out of their alberta bc saskatchewan and texas locations apex automation is automating industry energy industry in saskatchewan alberta bc you work in potash mining you work in natural gas are you working in traditional oil and gas pipelines if you want to be part of where automation is going you have to check out the careers link at apexautomation.ca we're grateful to have Alberta's finance minister uh, finding time to speak with us this morning on a special post-budget edition of Real Talk. The Honorable Nate Horner, welcome back to the show and, and thanks for doing this. Yeah, pleasure. Good to be with you. Yeah, you bet. So so Danielle Smith, uh, obviously on the campaign trail, um, she, she wanted to be premier for a long time and she knows what resonates with Albertans. Albertans like to see uh, responsible spending and low taxes. And she promised that personal income tax relief that just isn't coming this budget. It's not coming in the next while. The, the cynics and the critics are saying it's not coming till an election year. So what do you say to them? Why not this year? Well, I think if you saw budget 2024, you saw how small the surplus was. Um, we need some time to create the fiscal capacity to bring it forward. Um, we campaign on a few different things, one of them being balancing the budget, and it is part of our fiscal rules. The overall impact of the tax cut will be about $1.4 billion once it gets to 8% uh, over the course of a full year. Uh, I'm very confident and committed that we will be able to implement the cut. Budget 2024 lays it out where we'll legislate in 2025. We'll move to a 9% uh, $60,000 uh, level in 2026 and the full 8% in 2027. Um, if we had the room, I'd have, I'd have done it this year, but it, uh, 24 is our tightest year in this term. 
I, I remember, though, like, you know, what what uh, Premier was saying on the campaign trail, you know, she, she was saying these tax cuts are going to provide meaningful, timely tax relief to Albertans at a time when they need it most. I mean, I know it's not lost on you. It's not lost on anybody right now that the, the economics at an individual level, people are more stressed and strained now than they have been in a long time, maybe ever. Uh, you roll in inflation, the cost of borrowing and everything else, and families are really struggling. So how does this budget help them now? A lot of people are going, 2027's fine, but that's not helping me this Friday. Well, I, I would like to remind all Albertans that the the one big piece that we that we did do and, and happens every year now going forward is is that, that we re-index the basic personal exemption. And that isn't small. That um, that totals, I think, 980. A million dollars, almost a billion dollars over the course of the year, which was personal income tax savings uh, felt by all Albertans. So I think that's a great piece. Uh, coupled with the the tax cut that is coming, will certainly help. Um, but like I said, you know the affordability challenges every Albertan's facing. You know the government's facing them too, and we're trying to move in in lockstep and and keep sustainable spending at the government level so we can continue to provide all of these tax advantages for Albertans today and tomorrow. Uh, Alberta municipalities, uh, I mean, among the groups, uh, the advocacy groups that had released a statement yesterday, and it, it's, I mean, if I had to pick a word, I mean, they're basically devastated by this budget. They say that uh, it doesn't address in any meaningful fashion what they're calling a 30 to $40 billion infrastructure deficit. All of this under a, a new framework, and I know that when we talk to mayors and Reeves, when we talk to councillors, they're really concerned about the future of, of uh, the fiscal reality at the civic level uh, this budget doesn't do a lot for cities uh, how do you justify it well the the local government fiscal framework uh, you know it does tie um, municipal funding to our revenues so as our revenue line increases uh, so so will what they receive um, which i think is makes for a great partnership that that was something that they've they asked for um, certainly they would like like more money uh, every Everyone, everyone does. Uh, I'm, a, I'm aware of the needs. You have communities that are growing exceptionally fast. Uh, you have communities that have very old, very old infrastructure. And with the cost of everything to replace, you know, they're, they're burning up, you know, most of their funds on maybe redoing, you know, one block of, of underground uh, sewer and, and uh, water lines. It's, uh, it's very real. Um, and it's a challenge we're all facing together. When I met with the the feds and Minister Freeland uh, at our FPT meetings, you know, there was a, a very consistent uh, uniform call from all of the provinces saying that if, if you're going to help us, you know, if if, if we're going to increase our population by 1.2 million people in a year in a country of 40 million, you're going to need to focus on the infrastructure dollars so that we can help all of our communities. Yeah. And I that largely fell in deaf ears, but um, yeah, it, it's something something we're very um, in tune with. A lot of our capital plan is focused on uh, building infrastructure within those municipalities. We increased it by two billion dollars, uh, so we're we're doing what we can. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, they note and, and you acknowledge it, which I appreciate uh, forecasted population growth, which is a good news story, but we can't ignore the implications of it. They say existing roads, bridges, water, wastewater treatment facilities, energy infrastructure, schools, rec facilities, hospitals. When I say they, I'm talking about Alberta municipalities right now. And, and they point out that without uh, relief or without a significant investment from from your ministry and from the government of Alberta, this is going to be downloaded to property owners. I mean, this is basically forecasting significant rises more significant rises in property taxes is that something that from the provincial level you, you look to the municipal level and you say well that just might be part of the reality moving forward higher property taxes in alberta well there's only there's only one taxpayer everybody everybody knows that the different levels of government provide different services and have different avenues to to create revenue to provide those services so uh, we're we're doing what we can uh to to make sure that that's prioritized and spent in the right way. And, uh, you know, we're, we're all in it together. You know, I, I have uh, municipal um, counselors that, that serve, serve me back home and do a good job. I know the pressures that they're under, um, but we, we all, we all have our challenges. Minister Horner, uh, it's Doug Griffiths here from the Chamber of Commerce. I had a question for you. Now, 
Alberta's economic success depends on having that giant economic tiger between Edmonton and Calgary alive. Um, I saw <coughs> the funding for uh, both municipalities are pretty equitable on the highlight sheet. But in the strategic plan, there's $330 million committed to Calgary over the next five years. I'm wondering, how do we get a commitment to Edmonton to help with our downtown, our reinvestment, our entertainment district, um, to make sure that both cities are are alive and well? I know that's that's something that is is important to the Premier, and we've had a lot of conversations about that. I know when that pledge was made to Calgary, uh, there was a determination that that more had actually been spent in Edmonton leading up to that. So they thought that that was actually maybe equalizing things a little bit. But all of that aside, I think the premier uh, does believe that there's more things that we can do uh, to help Edmonton's downtown. Uh, we've tried to do that with, um, you know, the relocation of, of the homeless shelter and some of the other things we're doing uh, with justice and public safety. Uh, but if there's an opportunity that makes sense, I, I think uh, I think this government is uh, is looking forward to, to finding that with Edmonton. Thanks so much, Minister. This is Panita McBrien. I'm the CEO of the Edmonton Downtown Business Association. Um, I'm glad you touched on public safety. That is, of course, one of the top priorities for for my members in downtown Edmonton. I know uh, the same for my colleague in Calgary. Um, you know, a lot of what we've heard on the ground is that we are facing real constraints in the justice system and, and on in public safety and, uh, you know, crown prosecutors are overburdened uh, cases that should be heard or not getting heard, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think we were looking for more investment in those areas to account for really what, what we what we see on the ground as, as a public safety crisis in our cities. Um, and so I'm just uh, hoping that you could comment on what we can expect to see in terms of changes, knowing that there's not really a significant budget increase in those areas? Uh, it's a great question. Very real pressure. Um, you know, I'll tell a quick story. I, I know we had kind of a debrief from uh, one of the major film studios after after all of the uh, filming action in Edmonton last year. And, and they said, uh, we're, we're from L.A. And you guys, you got a real problem here. Like, we've never seen this kind of theft and crime uh, amongst the the vehicles and equipment that, that they were used to. And so that was that was kind of a striking comment. But I think that this budget does a lot. Um, there's there's a lot of little pieces about uh, digitizing and modernizing the court system. Uh, there's a focus around uh, a special prosecution uh, team to go after gang uh, and organized crime. Um, and and a lot of a lot of other investments to try to make the system more efficient. Um, the justice the justice line item has has increased a lot over our term. Um, it, it it's built up of, of a lot of labor, a lot of FTEs, uh, and so it's uh, it's one that we've seen a lot of growth in. But we're we're committed to to making those investments and making the system work work smoother and more efficiently. It's it's impacting every every area of the province. So. It's not lost on us. Minister, I want to, want to ask you about this $200 uh, electric vehicles tax. Uh, I, obviously, uh, Doug opens with it today as one of the big headline grabbers, and it has been, right? I see some people tongue-in-cheek uh, calling it the war on electric cars on Twitter. But maybe talk to us about the logic of that tax, uh, what else maybe you considered, and, and you know your perspective on it moving forward. It does kind of send a bit of a message, it seems, but what do you want that message to be? Well, I guess just that I, I don't think um, I, I think all Albertans are are happy to to pay their fair share. Um, we spend far more on road maintenance, highway maintenance, infrastructure than we receive in, from the fuel tax. But I think notionally, it's it's something Albertans understand that this this goes towards highway maintenance, and so when we offered affordability in, with tax, fuel tax relief over the course of the last year. This is something that my office was flooded with, was why, why don't you have a charge uh, for electric vehicles? And when we dug into it, um, you know, I, I had realized Saskatchewan had done something in 2021. Uh, they were the only province in the country. Uh, but 44 U.S. states, including California, uh, have done this or are moving towards doing it. Uh, so think it's very defensible for, for those reasons I just laid out. Um, we, how we achieved the $200 number, it, it equates very directly with what the average Albertan who drives the average amount driving the average vehicle would pay over the course of a year. 
All right, good uh, stuff. Uh, Minister, yeah, we've got 30 seconds left with you. I appreciate it. I want to ask you quickly about the Heritage Savings Trust Fund. Great point by a former cabinet minister on this show this morning saying if Alberta had $100 billion, let alone a quarter trillion in the Heritage Savings Trust Fund, it could uh, cause a, a disruption in the force, you know, across Canada. It could put Alberta in the crosshairs to receive even less federal funding for things like, well, whatever, insert program here. Can you see that being a problem that this government makes good on the commitment that Premier's talking about? Well, we're not getting our fair share anyways. I would start there. But I, I think it, it's, it provide a lot of opportunity to this province. Um, I know in, in speaking to the capital markets and trying to repair our, our credit rating, you know, they love the fact that we that we have this fund. They see the value in it. And speaking with some firms that have done a lot of work with sovereign wealth, you know, I think that's that's where we started doing this work uh, to begin this vision that the premier's been communicating. Uh, so we see a, a ton of value. Um, they've taken $48 billion out of the fund since 1976 and used on operations and general revenue. Uh, the funds increased from $16 billion and change when we took office in 2019. Uh, it'll be at $25 billion after this deposit. So you're already seeing that kind of growth and the commitment to leave the retained earnings in there makes the $250 billion or more target very realistic. Um, and that will that will help if, if you're if you if you see a future where our oil revenue is going to disappear or dissipate, that timeline matches very well. Um, and then it gets to a place where you can pull real amounts off it uh, every year annually and uh, fill some of that gap. We certainly have a structural deficit without it. As the Honorable Nate Horner, Alberta's uh, Minister of Finance, and everybody wants to talk to you after the budget. So we appreciate these 10 minutes. Thank you very much. Yeah, you got it. Nice to see you, Doug. Good to see you too. So he makes the the, the electric vehicle tax to me sounds reasonable. I mean, I, that sounds defensible to me. That, that That's not a, you know what I mean? Yeah, it, I, I said this morning, I, I think it's defensible. You've got to find a way to replace the revenue that you're losing as you move to more electric vehicles. So I think it's a, it is a defensible position. People might not like it and they'll construe it as attack, uh, an attack on electric vehicles, but, but the vehicles use the road and you've got to raise revenue to fix the roads. Yeah. And, and like on the surface, it, I mean, it's just, it's just because it's funny. Like we, we, po we, we have fun with some political storylines and it just seems like, yeah, they're, they're targeting. He says, well, Saskatchewan's already done it. Well, of course, Saskatchewan and Alberta are going to be the first to do it. But you know what he does as a veteran political communicator, he says, and so has California. California. And then everybody needs to shut up because yeah. of California is doing it. I mean, is there a jurisdiction in the world that, that's got tighter environmental standards? I don't know. I mean, I'm not the one to say. No, I would I, say no. I'd uh, say they're pretty right. Tight. California yeah. emissions are the real deal. If you, you buy cars in California, you know that. Um, how did you feel about the answer that you got, Panita? Yeah, again, I'm I'm a chronic optimist, so maybe it's my Achilles heel. But I do. I mean, there's a lot of changes in the strategic plan. Like it might not be dollars, but there's a lot of things that it seems like this government's planning to do differently. There's some talk in the section on public safety and justice about using more restorative justice, mental health courts, you know, drug treatment courts, like diverting people from incarceration, focusing more on mental health. There's a good amount. There's actually like a surprising amount of funding um, for a lot of mental health uh, initiatives, you know, CASA Youth Mental Health, um, $7 million this year on Indigenous mental health and addiction uh, services and communities that I think is new money, like therapeutic living units uh, in corrections to help people with mental health who are incarcerated. So I don't know. Again, like I, I maybe I'm being naive, but I actually feel like um, maybe with some of these strategic changes, the efficiencies he talked about, and then some of this diversion to, to mental health treatment, may, maybe we will actually start to see a change on the ground. I'm, I'm proud to be a, a CASA ambassador and uh, Bonnie Blakely, who's been the CEO there for, I, I want to say about a year, maybe yeah. ish, approximately, maybe, maybe a bit longer, um, has, has been like unabashedly bold in uh, talking about, you know, I mean, they're, they're absolutely intent on doubling and ultimately quadrupling the services that they're offering, but, but also like the, the horrific gut punch nature of that goal is that there's that need right. for youth mental health supports in the province. Yeah. You know, isn't it interesting? Like when you look at a budget, sorry to be Captain Obvious here for a second, but but you can talk you if you talk. And by the way, I, I put did put words in Alberta municipalities mouths. I said, if I had to pick a word, I would say they were devastated. Why am I picking the word? They issued a release. Let me use their words. They didn't say devastated. They said extremely discouraged. 
the magnitude, though, of using extremely discouraged in a news release from a big organization like that is not lost on us. No. Right. So so you've got the municipality saying we've got these infrastructure deficits and then you've got people talking about uh, like overstaffed uh, or pardon me, overworked nurses, understaffed healthcare professionals, schools that aren't being built, families that are busing their kids an hour, an hour and a half away. I mean, you know, you could you could pick one downtown crime. I mean, let's talk about that. The comparison that someone says I'm from L.A. and Edmonton's got it bad. That's kind of like, <laughs> well, OK. Um, I mean, maybe they're from Malibu. I don't know. Um, but like everyone can make a compelling case that their vested interest should be the top priority of the budget, right? Yeah, you know what's interesting? This is a bit of a hot take. I don't know if I want to say this, but I'm already going down the road, so I'll say it. I think, you know, when we talk about the Alberta advantage and we talk about being a competitive environment for business, taxes is it's this old crutch and it's for sure the way this government wants to position the Alberta advantage. We have a low corporate tax rate and we have no PST. But when you actually break it down for what matters to most growing startups and, and small and medium enterprises, which is the majority of our economy, the corporate tax rate only affects you if you're profitable, if you're highly profitable. So most of our, like if you think of our tech companies, our fastest growing businesses downtown, uh, emerging industries, a lot of companies that are hiring a lot of people they're not profitable and they're probably not going to be profitable for a long time. So the corporate tax rate is irrelevant to them. That really only benefits the largest corporations. So when I talk to our downtown businesses and what makes Alberta compelling and attractive and what matters, it's quality of life. It's how good are our schools? How well-funded are our schools? How clean and safe are our streets? How affordable is it to live here? Like those quality of life things that matter to Albertans, that matters more to business, in my opinion, than our tax rate. What are your uh, What are your members telling you, Doug? Well, our members, uh, I mean, we've heard from some of them that that um, hoped there would be uh, an actual uh, increase in the basic exemption on small businesses, so that they would wind up paying less taxes. And that, of course, they drive eighty percent of our employment in this province. So, um, if you want to have the biggest impact on businesses. Um, I mean, the personal tax exemption uh, um, rate is going to help, um, but that's a year or two out. But helping with small businesses, I mean, every small business that I've ever known, the second they have extra money, they put it into investing in stock or inventory, hiring new people, cleaning up the place, doing more because they're they're trying to grow their business. So. I mean, I think that would have the biggest impact on small businesses. I want to take a look at our YouTube live chat here. And uh, you know, let me just drop in on this one here. Uh, Cassandra says, why are we not talking about the fact that there's zero in the budget for emergencies like fire, floods, drought, et cetera? Um, I, don't, I don't know about that. Uh, I would say, actually, just because I have, I know I'm referencing Alberta municipalities all right now. I just have their email in front of me. They say, we're pleased to see the GOA taking threats of widespread drought and wildfire seriously by increasing funding for related initiatives. So, so that's from them. Um, what, what were some of the other ones that might be off your radar? Like, let's say like you're steering. So when you took the job as president and CEO of the Edmonton Chamber, you made this. I couldn't believe you did it. Actually, I was sitting there when you did it. You step up to a microphone. You say, what was the amount of time you gave yourself for a thousand meetings? 200 days. Two, I was like, what is he doing? <laughs> and I finished them. I finished them on Tuesday. You did. I yeah. know you did. I was like, ooh. Uh, but so a thousand. So you're talking to a thousand people um what were some of the recurring themes that we haven't yet talked about well the, i think the biggest theme uh, which is part of the question that i asked minister horner about the importance of edmonton and helping the alberta economy being that equal um balance to to calgary we need we need equal weight on both sides i mean i, I always use the uh, the analogy of a of a barbell if you put 50 pounds on one end and five pounds on the other, it's difficult to lift up. It's almost impossible. But if you have equal weight on each end, you can lift it. So Edmonton needs to be to step up to to a new brand and a new reputation that makes it a world-class city and stop, stop running itself down. Stop assuming that it's not deserving of what we get. And I, I think we have potential over the next few years to change that story and change that dynamic, especially with funding from the provincial government. Because, I mean, in this cycle, it's a it's only the first year of their mandate. This is the first budget. Everyone wants to see, in general, Albertans want to see a balanced budget and they want to see lower taxes. The spending and the tax cuts tend to come in the third and the fourth year as you get to an election. And so some of that spending that Edmonton needs, I mean, I know we got the Windspear Center, we got the McEwen Business School, we got the Nate Advanced Skills Center. That's some good investments for downtown. I think the potential to get $330 million more over the next few years is high. And I, I think we need to, to rally 
as Edmontonians and as multiple organizations and keep approaching this government and saying, look, uh, we're important to you. Yeah. Um, uh, Travis in the chat says no money for municipalities, but like 300 plus million to subsidize Calgary Flames ownership. What's up with that? Uh, were you satisfied with the uh, answer that you got from the finance minister on your question about the the, the two? You know, I, I always feel bad when you say the two big cities and like Red Deer and Grand Prairie and all them are like screw you guys but you know the two let's say let's say the two biggest cities were you satisfied with the answer well i'm i'm satisfied that there's a a door open to have some of that conversation i i think um minister horner recognizes the value and the importance of edmonton i think this government does and i actually you know we often have some concerns that we don't have um, um, sitting MLAs in their caucus to go have the conversation, but they're also sitting there thinking we don't have any sitting Edmontonian MLAs in our caucus, uh, which may uh, you know keep their ears perked up a bit listening to what we need. But that's why we need this business community, the DBA, um, the Downtown Recovery Coalition, the City of Edmonton, all of our post-secondary institutions, uh, the Stollery, which I'm so glad got funded. Um, for for its development i mean we need to have one united voice about the value edmonton provides to to alberta's economy and i know every single municipality is challenged and frustrated they need to reinvent their downtowns they need investments edmonton is no different than the rest of them but you know edmonton and calgary are two of the big reasons why people move to this province um, and so we need to make sure that we have that economic powerhouse that's properly funded with the quality of life that Panita had mentioned about, because that is what drives a strong economy and will help keep Alberta robust, attracting new young professionals, attracting new industry and businesses, because we need to be places that people want to live. That's what draws in investment. And that's the core of all of this. Mm. Um, I've, I've, the conversation is, you nailed it. Uh, like, honestly, I would say like a quarter of the comments or maybe a fifth of the comments are about the EV tax. And, and, and really, if you look at it as a line item, it's, it's not, it's, well, whatever. It's it's relatively insignificant. It's a it's a drop in the ocean. The small uh, things always make the headlines. It's so true. And uh, y- you know, Blaine says road and highway maintenance in Alberta is a result of every other vehicle being a truck. Uh, it's not an issue with EVs. I don't know. Michael says it's not that the EV tax is a big deal. It's the reasoning behind it equating EVs to weight uh, that just pits people against each other. I saw some people saying that this discourages folks from being part of the the road to net zero. Um, Shane says EVs that tax should also fund the environmental damage of mining lithium and cobalt to make these EVs. I mean, like a common uh, protest or a, a common objection to EVs there, of course. Uh, Randy uh, says bro trucks. <laughs> what, are, what are bro trucks? Is that like three quarter ton and up? I don't know. Is that dualies? I don't know. But bro trucks are heavier, he says, than EVs. Make it, let's, let's not get obsessed on weight here. Um, make every driver pay a fee at registration based on weight and kilometers driven. Picking on EVs because they don't purchase oil. Uh, Todd says this is just a poor way to implement into road tax um, says the gas tax works because it's a pay for use system. I like that point, Todd. He says the more you use, the more you pay. This punishes people who might want to use their EVs less. Uh, you know what? Another way of doing that is called tolls. <laughs> toll roads. Yeah. Toll roads. Yeah. Are you allowed to talk about toll roads in Alberta? Are you allowed? To- we didn't ask the minister about a PST because we knew what he would say. Uh, he would never acknowledge to considering it. Did did, did the government, you were sat, sat around that cabinet table. Anybody ever float the idea of a PST? Well, I did. <laughs> and, yeah? And yeah, I, I, I don't know, McLean's Magazine called me every two months for about a year just to see if I'd been shot after I talked about how, uh, yeah. you know, maybe we need to talk about a PST. We, it, I, I always found it ironic as a conservative that we tax people's um, paychecks. So you get the tax taken off before you you uh, ever get your paycheck and we're okay with that but but when you spend the money you don't want to be taxed on it and and yet a PST is shown to encourage people to save to pay down debt to to look for tax credits to do things like that and so as a conservative I always thought I'd rather have a, a lot less income tax and have a PST. There's but. an interesting thing there too for the local economy that people mm. forget like a PST is great Uh, not having a PST is great for us as Albertans, as consumers. But I think of like Blue's Women's Wear, iconic, um, longstanding downtown business. Um, There is nothing discouraging me from an Albertan from going online and buying a dress from Amazon or, you know, insert American retailer because I'm not paying PST as a consumer. There's no competitive advantage for local businesses when it comes to getting consumers on the PST. So it's like, yeah, it it makes life more affordable for Albertans, obviously. And it's like the cost of doing business is lower. But when it comes to spending and trying to support our local economy, 
no PST might be good for tourism, but it's not great for, for local business in other ways. It's uh, th this gives me the inroad. I know that I'm about to say something federal, but but you know Brian Mulroney. I mean, keep in mind he was a conservative prime minister that introduced the GST. So it, it is possible as a conservative to introduce a tax, uh, a sales tax. And, and rest in peace, Brian Mulroney, uh, passing away uh, just yesterday. If you're listening to this on the day we're doing it, passing away on the 29th, I believe, of February. Uh, at least that's when his family announced it. Um, I was like, I, I, I recognized that he was prime minister when I was like just a, a wee lad. I was an elementary school kid, but I, there was always something about Brian Mulroney, something very compelling. Uh, I always, I always really liked Brian Mulroney. I know he's got his critics, and and uh, I, I don't know if you two saw the Globe and Mail called him one of Canada's most divisive prime ministers. They like, they like stepped on his grave yesterday. Basically, I thought it was brutal. But uh, did you, did you have? I know you're even a little bit younger than me. But do, did Brian Mulroney? Did he resonate with you in any way, Panita? No, I am a lot younger than you, actually. Ryan. <laughs> so um, uh, no, but I obviously I know who Brian Mulroney is, and then of course his son has ended up being a bit of a, a socialite in, in yeah. the, the Canadian landscape. And I, yeah, he is so likable. It's so true. Like I don't have when I think of the name Brian Mulroney and that brand, like nothing really negative or divisive comes to mind at all. Like it, it is just this fondness. Like he's just sort of this this face that's a big part of our history. That uh, yeah, I feel like a lot of people are are feeling pretty pretty low today. Some people give him credit for keeping Canada together. Um, people celebrate what he did with, uh, you know, on apartheid on that file with Nelson Mandela before the United States or Britain were doing anything. Um, and then he just had like as a broadcaster, that voice, man, like you have the voice. Yeah. Um, Doug, you're just barely older than me. <laughs> oh, I think I'm a little bit. See what I'm doing here? Yeah. yeah. But uh, your take, I mean, you were a progressive conservative cabinet minister. He was obviously the leader of the federal party, the prime minister. He still owns the record. I know we don't talk about politics like sports, uh, but through an election, 1984, the most seats of any Canadian prime minister in an election. Yeah. I. You know what? I, I, I got to meet Brian Mulroney several times and talk to him. And what I always found was that he was an incredibly practical person. That's why he... he uh, uh, introduced the GST because it wasn't wasn't ideological all the time with him, and I I actually think you know one of the challenges we have not just in Canada but uh, uh, around um, North America is that conservatives have become more ideological and they feel like the world needs to fit into a certain mindset, and so you can't discuss uh, PST, you can't discuss um, free trade, you can't uh, you can't discuss because they fit into this ideology the way the world's supposed to work. But Brian Mulroney was the last great pragmatic conservative politician that that really focused on building the country without saying nope that doesn't fit into my belief system. His mind was pretty open to to pragmatic solutions to real world issues, and I always appreciated him for that. Mm. And I think that's actually what made him a little bit divisive because that's where the uh, ideology started to take over the conservative party and say we believe this because that's what split the conservative party and then we got Kretsch in for 10 years and and i i think that's one of the challenges the conservative parties across north america have right now is that that you know even to win the nomination you have to be very ideological and hold to a very hardcore right-wing perspective but then it makes it more challenging to win elections we need more pragmatic politicians looking for real world solutions instead of trying to satisfy an ideological base that refuses to have a discussion because they don't believe in something and they won't even discuss it yeah i would say that's true across the political spectrum like it's so true we have lost that in politics at at almost all levels of government, I think we, you know, municipalities have maintained some level of political neutrality. We've managed to keep ideology out there for now. But that's, I think that's what scares me about political parties at the municipal level. Exactly. That is terrifying to me because I see what's happening at the provincial and federal level. And it, it that kind of ideological decision making that does not necessarily go where the facts and pragmatism would take you. That's scary stuff. Yeah. Uh, not everybody agrees in our live chat, which is weird. Usually everybody agrees on everything. Um, <laughs> but Jillian says, how did Brian? I mean, I know when you say certain things about Brian Mulroney, like some people are going to say, why are you talking about paper bags full of cash? Why aren't you talking about all the other stuff? So but but I'll acknowledge Jillian says, how did Brian Mulroney keep Canada together? Wouldn't the Meech Lake Accord would have appeased Quebec separatists and split the country up? Meantime, wise Kyle says Brian Mulroney was part of here we go. The greatest trio of leaders, uh, all capitalized, by the way, uh, at the time and maybe in history, Mulroney, 
Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. So we know where Wise Kyle's coming from. He says uh, they ran the 80s to be one of the best decades um, for some people, for sure. Uh, appreciate that from Wise Kyle. Um, so enjoyed having the two of you in studio. And, and obviously, when you talk about a budget, you, you could get uh, in a province like this four and a half million different perspectives on it. Uh, but I want to make sure that we don't leave anything untouched or unaddressed or, or on the table um, as, as we kind of wrap this edition of our Real Talk Roundtable with Doug Griffiths, President and CEO of the Edmonton Chamber of Commerce, Panita McBride, CEO of the Downtown Business Association. Anything we haven't touched on that you thought was significant or you'd like the audience to be thinking about or asking more questions about in the days and weeks to come? Well, I, I would reinforce, because I think this is the most important part. This is the first year of this mandate, so it's the first budget. And, and I would say don't despair. There's a lot of hope and a lot of opportunity. Their revenues are going to increase significantly, as we saw from their the next couple of years. Uh, prospects. Um, I think it's a credible opportunity. They're going to be wanting to reinvest in this province. They're going to be looking to, for opportunities to invest in this city. They're going to be looking at, at, at uh, opportunities to continue to decrease taxes while they, they make those strategic investments. So, I mean, I just think Edmontonians, Edmonton businesses, post-secondary institutions, the DBA, we all need to, to coordinate and strategize together to make sure that we stay front and center in the minds of this government. So over the next couple of years, they're ready to, to rubber stamp some of those strategic investments that will ensure Edmonton's economy, Edmonton's downtown, and Edmonton's quality of life continues to be exceptional. Love it. Uh, I do want to mention that uh, it feels like a ways from now, but it'll be here before you know it. The Edmonton Chamber of Commerce presenting the 2024 State of the City Address with Mayor Amarjeet Sohi. Uh, it's a must-attend event. You can learn more about it May 10th, 2024 by visiting edmontonchamber.com. Panita, how about you? The one thing we didn't talk about is housing. Uh, it's obviously a hot topic uh, in all of our cities. Um, MLA Janice Irwin is is all over this right now. She's got a, a private member's bill. I think that's what it's called um, on rent control, which is very controversial. Uh, lots of mixed opinions on whether that's an effective measure, but I can imagine that's probably very popular with a lot of voters who are renters. Um, and so I think it's important that this government keep talking about housing. They're investing in this budget $70 million over the next three years into homeless shelters. Um, everyone that I talk to on the ground is adamant that shelters are not a solution to our housing problem by any stretch. Uh, and for us downtown, like if folks are in shelters overnight, that's great that they have a roof over their head if they, if they go to the shelter, but where do they go all day? And, and, and what, how do we get them on a path to being housed and to, you know, getting, getting their life back on track in many cases. So I'm, I'm a bit concerned to see that the biggest investment on the homelessness and housing file is this $70 million over three years for shelters as far as new stuff. Um, because on the affordable housing, supportive housing side, uh, there's still not a lot there from my understanding, especially not anything new. Yeah, you, want, you wonder if it has, I mean, how, you, you, we see this trend uh, the prime minister was here, obviously, on the 21st of February, uh, talking to us right before he made uh, approximately what was $190 million, something like that, an announcement into the city uh, of Edmonton, an investment, I should say. Um, they did something comparable-ish in Calgary. Uh, they're spending about $2 billion bucks in British Columbia. And I know that the uh, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities has has requested more direct cooperation and investment in projects with, with the feds and municipalities. And I wonder if maybe this is the province kind of acknowledging that, I mean, it's what it is, is like the critic would say they're passing the buck. Uh, that's what the critic would say. But if it's maybe an acknowledgement from the province that they're looking at this as something that the feds and municipalities are gonna try to solve. Yeah, I don't know about that. Like the, the housing announcement that the feds made here is going to be just barely enough for us to maintain maybe some level of affordability as our population balloons. Like that money is not going to make life more affordable for anyone. We're not going to create more affordable housing units for people who are living in poverty. Like that investment, I, I don't know. Like I think that's going to keep us at status quo maybe. Um, but there's there's growing challenges, and I, I don't I don't think it's enough. I, I know that that um, I've heard firsthand that uh, you know a particular member of this government, provincial government, called the municipal councilor and said, "Hey, you guys should be spending your money on roads, not on housing. That's not your mandate." But the province didn't step up with the funding necessary for housing. So the the city is stuck in a bit of a quandary that we have. We need appropriate housing, and we need to improve our roads, and we need to invest in downtown. So it comes back to 
Um, and I was pleased to hear Minister Horner talk about as their revenues increase, their surpluses increase, more funding can go to municipalities. But they could also transfer that surplus to the Heritage Trust Fund and create no surplus. So I really hope um, the intent is there to provide increased funding to Alberta's municipalities because they desperately need it. And our, our economy is driven, you know, not just by the province, but by the quality of the communities you live in. So I hope that funding increases. I wish I could remember who said it, because I think it was the comment of the day in our live chat. So I apologize to the real talker who it was that left this. But they said, as they're listening to us go back and forth, they said, I'm confused. Are we rich or are we poor? <laughs> and I thought yeah. that, that, that's actually like that. That's the budget summed up in one sentence. That's actually brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Well, are we rich or are we poor? I'm confused. This this budget still borrows some money and then uses yeah, like money to billion, pay off some right? other. Right, and so it's it's kind of you're borrowing from one hand and spending on the other. And and I know I I've been in the budget process. I understand why they're doing it, and it's it's legitimate. It's not a game, but it's still a little bit confusing about whether or not we're we're really wealthy or you know we're falling on tough times. But that is the first year's budget. Every time you say we don't have enough money, you balance the books, you store a little bit, and then when you get to the third and fourth year, you can start to do strategic investments which is why I'm still hopeful. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's funny how that always aligns with election cycles. Yeah. yeah it's weird how it's that works, weird. isn't it? Everything just in these perfect four-year blocks. Um, huge thanks. By the way, do you see what this, you see this green square here in our live chat? That's called the super chat. So that indicates to us that, that an audience member has actually donated money uh, based on what they heard. And Ken just shot us five bucks. And uh, he says, give me a cabinet full of Doug Doug Griffiths, please. So there you go. I'm not going back into politics. You're not going back. Hey, I think I think you, I think you found a good fit. What I, you're doing right now. I did. Uh, yeah, Doug Griffiths, President of the Edmonton Chamber of Commerce. Penny McBride. It is like a, a delight every time we get to pick your brain because I know that like obviously. Um, you know, you, you bring sort of like the chops to the table and understanding building Edmonton's downtown, getting business back, revitalizing that place. But it's also very evident that you give a damn about what you do. And I love it. So thanks for being here to break down this budget for us. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. You got it. Panita, CEO of the Edmonton Downtown Business Association. And thanks to those of you that have been watching this, tuning in live on YouTube or on the Mixler live streaming audio app presented by California Closets. Those of you listening later, uh, send us your thoughts to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Email inbox, obviously open 24 four hours a day and that's exactly where we're going in 60 seconds uh, for a Friday tradition we have called the flamethrower but first I want to show something off for you this uh, courtesy of our friends at Eden Landscaping you can find them online at landscapeedmonton.ca we talk a lot about what they can do I'm talking to you a lot about timeline if you want your project done in time for that Canada Day party or maybe your 50th anniversary maybe your son or daughter's graduating from high school you're going to have people in that backyard they're going to arrive through the front you want your curb appeal to be top notch check out the work that Eden Landscaping can do taking vision and bringing that vision to life you got to check out their Greenland Garden Tour submission this was a home in the Balmoral Heights neighborhood uh they featured in this landscape installation over 100,000 pounds of boulders. How amazing is that? I love these rock gardens, these sort of more arid designs that are becoming more on trend, especially with more drought condition forecasted. Your landscape designer has to understand where things are going and how those trends are matching that. That's exactly what Mike and his team do. You can request a free conversation with them by checking out their website, landscapeedmonton.ca. And if you happen to be, heaven forbid, impacted by flood, uh, maybe it's a burst pipe in the winter, maybe it's flooding through the spring rains or wildfire, let me tell you, Complete Care Restoration has more than 25 years of experience restoring property and rebuilding peace of mind. There's going to be a lot of stuff on your mind when disaster strikes. Entire communities impacted in many cases. We've seen it right here in Alberta and BC. The last thing you want to worry about is the commitment that your contractor has to getting you back to where you were or even better complete care restoration does exactly that approaching each project like it's their own you can find them online at completecarestoration.ca the last episode of every week here on real talk uh, our friends at the dairy queens of northwest edmonton and sherwood park that's palisades nemeo newcastle westmount baseline road give us a chance uh, to blow off a little steam we invite you to bring us your hottest takes to ramp it up these are all real emails from talk 
at ryanjesperson.com. That's where we're pulling these from. That's our inbox. It's the Flamethrower, presented by the DQs of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. And this one from Sue, who writes in, this is Sue's budget coverage. Sue says, I am flabbergasted that this government has canceled plans to build that new hospital in South Edmonton. Edmonton hasn't had a new hospital built since the Grey Nuns. We're talking the 1980s. It shouldn't have been a choice between the Stollery and the South Edmonton Hospital. We need both. And I know that they're trying to sell this as fiscal responsibility and saving for the future, but what it's really doing is stealing the future from Edmontonians and rural communities around. They'll fail to get proper and timely health care. What the government needs to do is collect an appropriate level of taxes, most especially corporate, says Sue, to ensure that we can build proper infrastructure. We could also maybe cancel that war room. Not really a thing anymore. Stop paying for advertising to convince Albertans of their terrible policies. Stop money trying to push that Alberta pension plan. Sue, you notice it's disappearing from the... She says, She says. what about all this marketing to Eastern Canada? What about the Calgary Arena? What about shifting responsibility for Orphan Wells? I could go on and on, says Sue. How about you guys focus on health and education and stop focusing on political ideology? That from Sue. I love this one from Melvin, who says, guys, I love the show. I thought your interview with the Prime Minister was fantastic. I'm not a fan of the guy at all, but he was articulate and actually made some good points, says Melvin. The reason I'm reaching out is to say, are you ready for this? That Johnny was right, says Melvin. Uh, During that show, he says, "Uh, it might be best, Ryan, to avoid calling Newfoundlanders Newfies. (laughs) I think... I know this. He says, he says I've been and told I did this. too. Now, yeah. I want to be clear. If this is your first exposure to this controversy on Real Tech, I want to be clear. I was reading someone's comment, and ahead of reading the comment, I yeah. wondered aloud, am I allowed to say Newfie? Yeah. And you said, I don't think so. My wife is half, and she tells me all the time. It's, some people like it. Some people don't. Just avoid. I think it's one of those <laughs> things where, like, if you are a Newfoundlander, you can say it. And if you're sure. not, you shouldn't. Sure. So Mel- Melvin says, I am a Newfoundlander who's lived in Alberta for quite a long time. And I've only ever heard the used word the word used in a pejorative sense. Uh, funny enough, though, he says, now that I'm in a more senior position in my field, nobody's using the word around me anymore. He oh. says, now it's not the biggest issue on earth, but I figured it was worth reaching out. Have a great weekend. That from Melvin. Love it. Thank you. I appreciate that. I will no longer say the word we used to say about Newfoundlanders. We're always learning. Plus, Newfoundlander just rolls beautifully off the tongue anyway, doesn't it? <laughs> right? a, sh- a shout out to all the Newfoundlanders that are now calling Alberta and Western Canada home. This one from G Money, who says a public service here for you guys. After Jespo's Trudeau interview, I, uh, I want to help your listeners understand something. Oh, thank you, G Money. Says, first of all, congrats on the interview. I thought it was stellar, Trudeau. However, hmm, the cracks are showing. The end is near. But but I want to refocus my public service announcement here. He says, I've heard people on this show question Pierre Polyev's rise and tax. Now hold my beers, says G-Money, while I break this down for you. Canadians are fed up with Justin Trudeau and the Liberals. They feel like they're never going to get the Prime Minister in a one-on-one to say what they really want, uh, even if they catch him at an event. It comes up with so much anger and rage that it doesn't make sense. Uh, that's on them, not the PMG. Uh, says Polyev's able to get his uninterrupted time to tell Trudeau what Canada wants to say. And also, Ryan, on this gender and trans children issue, I'm convinced that the media class knows where Canadians stand on this, but they'll take their political political, personal, and ideological beliefs and cast them upon Canadians. The polls have shown the majority of Canadians want parents notified about changes in their kids' behavior, pronouns, etc. The polls have never shown any wavering in support for Polyev when he speaks on this matter, but the media is trying to dictate what Canadians and politicians can talk about. Is that democracy? G-Money says the tides have shifted. Canadians can speak openly and freely, agree and disagree on issues, whether it's gender or economics, and, and vote on them. And all that talk of what's important from a set of people who voted for Trudeau based on legalizing cannabis. Okay, that from G-Money. Number one, you shouldn't vote or leave up to democracy. Things involving marginalized populations. I just want to address that. And number two, let you know we got a guest coming up in the next two weeks that's going to talk about a report he did for the McDonald Laurier Institute on where Canadians actually are on quote-unquote woke culture. Pardon me invoking the phrase. How about this one from Brian who writes in and says, Jespo, I enjoyed your Black History Month Real Talk Roundtable, but as I listened to it, I have to be honest, I felt insulted. I'm, I'm a white guy, born and raised in Canada. I'm 65 years of age, says Brian. I've crossed paths with many people over the years from many different ethnicities and cultures. When I meet someone, I don't see color, I see character, and I resent being included in a general statement about whites being racist. I am not racist. 
racist. Uh, to me, it felt like reverse racism against all the whites. Uh, maybe your guests should rephrase their comments so that they don't come across as being racist against white people. Brian says, I've always felt when it comes to employment, government, the best person with the best qualifications should fill those positions. Now, I do realize not all people feel that, and there are real issues in this country, as well as the countries that your guests left to come to Canada. Sincerely, Brian, who signs off, peace and love. This one from kind of a highfalutin personality, Johnny. This is this is a tragedy. We're going to use his full name because okay. he signs off with it. This is a this is a flamethrower submission from Chris Flat, who's the business manager from IUOE Local 955. So we got a union okay. leader writing in here. He says, Jespo, I appreciate the great discussions you have, the diverse viewpoints you foster. I love the show. However, he says in all caps, on my way back from Calgary, I was listening to a show featuring commentary from the Alberta Chambers of Commerce on a segment discussing Alberta's skilled talent shortage. I tuned in eagerly. This is an issue I deal with often as a labor leader in the construction trades, but I was alarmed as some proposals for solutions to the shortage made by the representation from the chambers. First, I mean, suggesting the fast tracking of foreign credentials as a remedy to the talent shortage is a bit rich. Considering a major contributing factor to the current shortage is the skilled trades is because industry stopped investing in Albertans years back by ending apprenticing when the economy tanked. Many local folks seeking a skilled trade at that time had no choice but to abandon the path because work completely dried up for apprentices, resulting in fewer Albertans getting trained, adding to the current scare we need to focus on creating opportunities for kids to learn and develop skills, not on talents from other jurisdictions. Plus, the suggestion of micro-credentialing. Um, in the trades, for example, you'd carve us up into specific crafts, minuscule tasks only, like minor welds or pulling wire or pounding rebar. You would avert folks from obtaining a well-rounded journey person's ticket. That whole trades a la carte approach could harm the good work Albert is doing to promote rewarding careers in the skilled trades. It would roadblock kids wanting to get into well paying trades because they would transform into lower paid, watered down versions of what they once were. Tens of thousands of folks across the province are proud of their journey person's tickets and the skills they've obtained in Alberta. We need to expand and protect this learning, not chop it up to save wealthy employers a few bucks. What I'm saying, says Chris Flat, is let's invest in our youth and trades as a solution, not look for ways to help inflate the already bloated waistline of corporate interest. Okay, and this one, I've been looking forward to reading this one from AY who writes in earmuffs kids and says Jespo can you shut the fuck up about Pierre Poliev just once? Now, real talkers, this is Jespo speaking. This is not going where you think it's going. AY says, nobody cares what your opinion is on who you would vote for for the next prime minister. Number one, I've never said that on the record. Unless you're going to do your fucking job and cover the facts of what he's been saying and the sort of bullshit he's been spreading. You saying you think he should be the next prime minister, which I have never said, is totally and completely fucking useless bullshit, says AY who spends more time writing angry emails than actually listening to what talk show hosts say. AY says, maybe if you stopped LARPing as a journalist and actually pulled your head out of your ass and looked at the information freely available, you would see that Danielle Smith, David Parker, Maxime Bernier are all peddling Russian propaganda. They have been since the anti-trans march last September. Fucking Reddit revealed that the vast majority of the the online support for these grotesque ideas being astroturfed through false narratives and sock puppet inflation of engagement numbers. Try reconnecting with Rachel Gilmore or even looking at her reporting on the conservatives and how they absolutely hate the hate that they're supporting. Your blind, biased support of conservatives in Canada, this is unreal, right, is exactly how Hockey Canada ended up with rapists and other fuckheads in charge of things. So not only does AY pin Pierre Polyev's prime minister rise to power on me, but I'm responsible for the Hockey Canada scandal too. AY, thanks, but no thanks. You can send us your flamethrower. Fire it up anytime. The talk at ryanjesperson.com. It is proudly presented by the DQs of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Big week coming up on the show next week. In the meantime, tell your friends to subscribe to Real Talk on the podcast, on YouTube. And of course, we'll see you back here Monday morning with Charles Adler. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, executive producer Josh Dunford, technical producer John Hicks. 
General Manager Katie Cook Chivers, Account Coordinator Lawrence Durlego, Human Resources Lena Shepherd, Website Design Mike Johnston, VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.